Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, introducing the second part of my conversation with B.J. Miller, which is pre-recorded from a conversation he and I had on March 6, 2019, when he did a conversation on compassion with me at the Center for Compassion and Altruism. So I had a near-death experience, uh, for those of you who did not read my book. And so I was a resident, and I was out celebrating with some of my colleagues using various substances, some of which were illegal. And a friend of mine lost control of the car that we were driving and ran us into a tree at 40 miles an hour. And I was wearing a lap belt. And uh, I had an acute flexion injury of the back, and I had a spine fracture, was paralyzed, lost bowel and bladder function, had a transected small bowel and a fractured spleen. And it was not a good day. I went to the emergency room. Fortunately, uh, my colleagues at the hospital, it was at the hospital I was training at, did not do any drug or alcohol levels. But I do not recommend you take drugs and alcohol. I was not the driver, but I should have known better. Uh, But anyway, uh, I went to surgery. They repaired the small bowel. They uh, took out my spleen. But the chief of surgery who operated on me missed a bleeder. So when I came out of surgery, my blood pressure, which was like normal, 120 over 80 or so, uh, started dropping. And literally, the chairman of my department in neurosurgery was arguing with the chief of surgery as my blood pressure went from like 100 over 60, 80 over 40, 60 over 20, about the possibility that he could not have made a mistake and missed a bleeder. And, the sh- and, and what happened was I actually left my body as my blood pressure got really low. And I was up in the corner of the room looking at this argument between these two people uh, where the chairman finally said, he used an expletive, if you don't take him back to surgery, I will. And the guy finally relented and I had five liters of blood in my body. Mm. My blood pressure was tw- 40 over zero when they took me back. So I really almost died. But once I went to the OR, I um, had a classic near-death experience where I uh, was going down a river of light. I heard all my loved ones who had passed before welcoming me. I was also reliving my life. And at the end of this river of light was uh, this tunnel of light that was the brightest, warmest experience. I mean, it was incredible. And I wanted to merge with the light. And, and in some ways, it was the most joyous, wonderful uh, feelings. And the river started speeding up. And the, initially, it was slow. And then it started really going fast. And I was going to merge with the light. And right before that, I screamed to myself, no. And then I woke up in the wow. recovery room. So of course, people asked me, wow, that was an incredibly profound experience, how did that change you? And actually, it didn't. 
I looked at it from a science point of view and <laughs> realized that I had uh, a lack of oxygen to my occipital cortex, and <laughs> that was why I had this burst of light. And the deepest memories you have are the ones that stick with you. So as I was losing all my memories, the ones that were most deeply embedded, the most important to me, were still there for me. In fact, it was what was left. At least that's how I put it. Now, if I was an agnostic, I could say I could be probably very wrong about that. <laughs> but I think it was just physiological. But that being said, in later reflection, I realized how powerful that could be. And at the same time, though, it also reinforced, though, how powerful us being here is and how you, first of all, you don't control your end, but at least most people don't, but also that it's you being here that makes the end there. And how you act here, what's here, and how you see yourself, and how you see your purpose and your meaning, because I think being with older individuals who've died, and I do think it takes some age, Almost everyone at the end of their days wants to feel that they had purpose and meaning here. And of course, purpose and meaning for most people translates to being of service to others. And I think that's what gives most of us our meaning in life. And that certainly has been my experience. And so I can look at the clock. We only have a few more minutes. I think we're going to open it to questions. And for those people who may have questions, what I'd like to ask you to do, if it's not too much trouble, is to actually use the microphones. And does anybody have any questions? There was only one person who prepared for death, and I want to know what she prepared. Oh, oh, the woman in the audience, yes. <clears throat> that was not a question for us. <laughs> Go, but go ahead, no, answer the question, go up to the mic and answer the question. So basically when I think about preparing for death, a lot of things come to mind. And it's all the paperwork, let's say a living trust, will, advanced directives, that's a start, right? Because I know that there are some people probably in this room that are like, oh, I'll get there, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, even when you have those things prepared, you still have to fight for things, in a sense, with the law, but you're better off if you get it done. So with that in mind, ask questions of your partner, regardless if you have all the paperwork done, because it doesn't necessarily mean that they've talked about exactly what they want or how they want it. Mm -hmm. And I know that my parents had asked me, they're like, well, how'd you know? And Because everybody's like, oh, you, you had that conversation. No, we didn't have a conversation. We were very young, my husband was first diagnosed when he was 42, so battled it for three years. Anyways, my point is we sort of came to preparing by just, I just listened to what he wanted. Um, and I think that, anyways, became very important. So um, as far as what I'm doing to prepare, like I have all that done and then I'm also living my truth. I became a family patient advisor with Hospice of the Valley, one of the only groups that's partnering with Hospice to make a difference in the conversation around death. So I don't know. I think that's how I'm preparing. So, and I talk to my child about death and it's a part of life. And 
So I hope that answered your question. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. follow on that, I, I wondered what you suggest by way of preparation. Um, and I'm thinking more on the spiritual, psychological ease of passing than the paperwork part of it. Yeah. Thank, thank you both. I mean, so, and I, I'm really glad that you brought it back. There, there's, there's, there's a range of things to be done. And, in, and the practical, logistical things are, are really key. It's amazing the difference for those who are left behind when someone has done, taken the time. So to be clear, let's, so just, so let's just move from the, the sort of nitty-gritty logistical up through the inter and intrapersonal and spiritual. So, I mean, so as you mentioned, an advanced directive. And if you're really living with a serious illness, I'd recommend you do this next step thing called a pulsed. An advanced directive is a legal document. A pulse is signed by a doctor. It's an actually a medical order. Pulse is physician's order, physician order for life-sustaining treatment. It's a companion to your advanced directive. And because it's signed by a doctor, it's actually an order. An advanced directive, some hospitals will blow right past them. So just because you have your advanced directive is not a guarantee that your wishes will be met. A pulse will increase the odds that they will be. So those are really important pieces of paper. Uh, and of course, they're not just pieces of paper. They reflect conversations, not just one. People change their minds over time. What I'm willing to live with and what I'm not willing to live with, that is a moving target. So these are conversations you have over time with yourselves and people you love and your doctors. And then things like a will, uh, very important. And then you mentioned uh, a trust. So unless you want to uh, burden your loved ones with probate, you don't stop at the will, get a trust. And don't just get a trust, sign it and fund the trust. A lot of people think they're done when they did the trust, but they didn't actually fund it. And that's a problem. So these are things, that conversation to have with your, your financial person, with your legal person, with your families. I mean, it is actually, uh, we make it really hard to die. So there's, those are sort of paperwork stuff that's really, really key. Increasingly, sort of a lot of us have lives on social media. So one of the, you guys may remember, it's, it's really kind of stunningly hard to turn off Facebook accounts and things like that after the death. So, and it sets up this very grotesque thing where people are sending Facebook alerts out from a dead person's account, and it just can get really ghoulish. There is increasingly, Facebook is working through this, I'm not, uh, it's not just Facebook, but there are, social media is another way you have to kind of tend to uh, your death. So beyond that, save a bunch of money. <laughs> Dying, I mean, can, can you afford to die is the question, is, is really tricky. We have a whole chapter in our book on this. Healthcare expenses are the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in our country. And I think it's something like 70% of those who go bankrupt are insured. Yeah. So I think we all think of the insured versus the uninsured. Insurance ain't, ain't enough. So start saving, like now. Um, it's really, really hard, and lots, most of us are going to live with chronic illness for years, and that may mean being out of the workforce for years and being on fixed income for years, whereas we used to get sick and die in a matter of days or weeks. Now it's many, many years. So start saving for it. Mm. Sorry, I know this is a very depressing litany, but really, really, really important. So those are some of the logistical things, and then I think moving beyond that, it's sort of the, the stuff I was referring to with Jeanette and her cigarettes is just sort of a life where you've minimized your regrets. When you actually act on the impulse, when you love someone, you, not even you tell them, but you act on it, you know? When you want to learn something, you go learn it. You don't continually put things off. 
uh, that sort of this sort of deferred gratification that we do all the time in the name of discipline and other things can really catch up with us in a, in a harsh way. So living yourself, I mean, it's pretty hard to live every day like it's your last. I don't even know if that's possible, and I don't want to be too cheeky here. But do watch, the, if you watch, if you see your stack of, your to-do stack of, oh, I wish I had written that person or this person. I wish I needed to talk to, I haven't talked to Aunt Jeannie in forever. You know, if you see that list growing, tend to it. Keep regrets at bay. And then finally, I think you, uh, in, what ends up happening, if those of us who are lucky enough to be on the planet for long enough, sort of has, seems to happen naturally, which is this diffusion of your ego. You know, you, you get small. I mean, I, one of the things where I'm happiest is when I realize how nice and small I am. I, I, that's a real, there's a real release in that. And then I, you, you start seeing value and worth and life outside of yourself. And then all of a sudden, you have a pathway to immortality right there. You know, when you die, you're going to dissolve, and but your your atoms go back, and you're part of this world that keeps on going. I mean, this this phrase "end of life" is really is an important misnomer. It's end of your life. <laughs> life, life will keep going, and if as soon as you get in touch with that, whether it's through a faith system or whatever, however it gets you there, start caring about the world beyond yourself. That includes yourself. I'm not saying like don't you know. Include yourself in this. This is not an, uh, an ascetic pursuit. So anyway, the long answer. Sorry, but this is a really important question. But there's a, there's a pretty good list for you. Do those things. Can you say the name of your book, which is coming out in July oh, and my, it's oh. available on Amazon? Oh, thank you, Jim. Topic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a beginner's guide to the end. He misspoke before. He said beginner's guide to death. I wanted to let him be. He's my elder. But uh, <laughs> what is it? It's a beginner's guide to the end. Yeah. Shoshana Berger is my co-author, um, and that's coming out in July. I'm hurt. Sorry, big guy. Uh, <laughs> one of the interesting things, and we'll get to your question in just a sec, is that I've seen is you're talking about letting go of your ego. It's fascinating to watch people who are wise get older because many of us have a tendency to you know, have our house exactly neat, the, everything is perfect, but you watch a person as they're heading towards the end, and all that BS doesn't matter anymore, right? They wear the same clothes every day, they're not worried about a little dirt on the floor, a few crumbs or anything like that, and amazingly, they're content and happy because they've let go of this trying to keep everything together and look perfect and have a display for others. They're living for themselves. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Jim. Thank you, BJ, for uh, a great conversation. So I, I think that uh, one of the ways that I prepare is to be loving in a present kind of way, as hard as that is, and as importantly, to express love. BJ, I love you, brother. I love you too, Anthony. And you know, in my 50-something uh, body, I think I'm preparing. My question is really about my mom. So my mom's 80-something, has arthritis. More importantly in this context is she has Alzheimer's. Her memory is not very good. She doesn't know what day it is, doesn't recognize people. Th those kinds of things, you know, thinks her parents are alive, doesn't know where she is. And so... When I think about her, and I, I've tried to understand, well, how can we help her prepare, or how is she preparing, when I'm not even sure she knows, I mean, she's in her last chapter. I'm not even sure sort of where her consciousness is. 
to be able to think about death. So I imagine you might have some experience with mm -hmm. Alzheimer's patients and... Yeah, well, I mean, so thanks, Anthony. I mean, and I really appreciate you sharing. I mean, this is, we all have, this is a very personal, inherently personal subject. And the more we talk and think out loud together, the better. So thank you. I mean, so one caution is for while we're coppice mentis, it's a good time. Why, another reason why it's great to not defer these things yeah. too long. And, but if mom didn't do that, you know, that's okay. That a lot of people don't one way, for one reason or another. Um, and this gets at what one of the probably, if, if I had to pick one thing to do to kind of prepare yourself at least to navigate the healthcare system through the end of life is to name a, your proxy. You know, someone who's going to be speaking on your behalf when you can no longer speak on your behalf. And that may default to someone in the family, but if, if you're going to do one thing, do that. And it's not just, it's not an honorific, it's not just, it's not to bestow someone with the, it's, it's actually a really important job. And sometimes that means it's not the spouse. Sometimes it's someone who's going to be able to think soberly on your behalf, not project their wishes, but to speak on your behalf, on your mom's behalf. Did your mom, does she have a healthcare proxy, Anthony, in any official so, way? So, yeah, my siblings and I, we've done all the paperwork and all of that kind of stuff, and we mm -hmm. feel like we're prepared on that end, and certainly there's all the financial part of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, I'm more concerned with how she's facing each day, mm -hmm. how she thinks about, you know, the direction of her day and mm -hmm. her life. You know, because part of me, you know, in the whole context of this conversation is seeing the end of life as um, not something to fear, something, in fact, to maybe per, to, to look forward to. And it's just a struggle because yeah. I don't think I can, we can't have that conversation. She doesn't sort of understand where she is yeah. in her life. And you can actually, sorry, Jim. No, I, 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 my only comment was, I, actually, my mother went through that to the point where she didn't even know who I was and uh, she was not in this world, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, well, again, you're projecting in some sense her humanity that it still exists, but what happens, unfortunately, sometimes is I think they're gone. And then the question is, who are you making decisions for? Mm -hmm. Because, actually, there was a recent experience with a spiritual leader who was a friend of mine who had a massive stroke, and they asked me to come and see him and, I, and it was in his dominant hemisphere, and I told them they should let him die. Because, you know, uh, uh, this is an individual who, his words are incredible, he has people surrounding him, and most people at the age of 80s, late 80s, would want that. And I told his followers, you have to be careful about what decision you're making and who it is for. Because oftentimes, you want to cling on and they're not there, or they actually would not want that. And then you're being selfish. And you have to, I think, be very, very careful about that. But maybe we can ask a couple more questions. And I don't mean to cut you off, but we have a few can more. Can I say people. one? Yeah, more sure. Thing. Sorry. <laughs> you're my elder. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, because if you can't talk to mom, and if you can't sort of use cognition, your intellect, to kind of find your way together, Suffering is kind of an amazing thing. You can rely, suffering will show itself. 
So in your gut or from a furrowed brow or from restlessness, your mom will probably show you whether or not in the moment she is getting something from life. Yeah. It does, you don't need a narrative over time. That's why the aesthetic world is so powerful to me. There's a world beyond the intellect. And so your gut, furrowed brow, difficulty breathing, fidgetiness, if she's turning away food, she's telling you that's, that's communication. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Beth. Thank you. Um, this is related to compassion. So how does a patient's experience of compassion impact the choices they make in terms of their care? And in particular, because uh, in Canada, we have medically assisted dying. So I just wanted to see if you had experience with that. Sure. Well, it's interesting. If somebody has the cognitive abilities and they have a perception in their own mind that their presence in this world is causing suffering to others, I think that they have the right to make a decision. Now, oftentimes other things can interfere with that, but in the best sense, uh, if someone is making a decision while they have their mental faculties and they're actually doing it not only to help their own suffering, but also to uh, decrease the suffering of those around them. You know, one of the challenges I have had frequently is in modern society, we don't have, uh, a, uh, let's say, your parents with you. They live someplace else typically. The siblings are spread all over. And oftentimes those siblings haven't seen their loved ones for a long time or been with them, yet there'll be one sibling who's lived nearby and has sort of been the caregiver. And then when a tragic event occurs, everyone comes and the people who've been the least there decide now it's time to give their opinion and, and exercise their decision because of all the guilt they have about ignoring their family member. And this gets into a very, very difficult, I, I'm sure you've... <laughs> <laughs> and so you have this one person, you know, I've been taking care of mom for the last five years. She told me what she wanted. I'm trying to do it. And says, you don't know, you're, you're just being selfish because you want everything and you want her to die. That's your only... And, and you're just like, oh my God. And so I, I think it is important that you actually... Uh, take the time to know what the person wants and also have the conversation with siblings because I have seen this actually destroy relationships among siblings too. Uh, when in fact, this should, everyone should come together to make someone's passing at ease versus now you're having screaming contests outside of the, you know, the hospital bed. And any of you experienced uh, yeah. And I would say, like, and that kind of points me to one of the, one of your jobs as a caregiver, is self-reflection, because one of the enemies in this is projection, and so I think it's one of the most the kindest things we can do is be self-aware, uh, and it gets really heated at the end, just as you're saying, Jim. So, put that on your list of to-dos. Now, the, and one other thing which I found, and you can tell me if you've been exper had experience with this, I'm a very pragmatic realist, and when it's clearly evident that this person is going to pass, you know, I start having that conversation. Now, a lot of neurosurgeons run away because it can be a painful and time-consuming. But that being said, there sometimes, though, is a doctor, a subset of doctors, who for whatever reason, they want to torture the patient to the absolute end. 
and to assuage their own guilt of failure that I have done everything possible, mm -hmm. yet that what they're doing is causing the patient to suffer horrible, horrible pain. And, and it's, it's sort of, in some ways, you're no, now no longer caring for the patient, you're dealing with your own ego issues. And I've had a number of mm -hmm. conversations about that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I'm glad we're in agreement on that. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I wanted to um, go back to your recovery after your traumatic accident. And in learning about post-traumatic growth, the wise teacher here at Stanford said, the rule is, dudes, you, you have to resist the temptation to point it out to somebody who's, um, who suffered a trauma, that you may yeah. not be the one to say, hey, there's going to be yeah. amazing things you learn. And so like, you need to zip that. Um, but I'm curious about... Like, what influences did you have around you that helped you do that remarkable shift into, I mean, I, I heard you speak in San Francisco where you talked about studying art and, and plumbing, like, the definition of what's, what it is to be human, and I suspect your mother probably had something to do with it, but, yeah. like, can you talk about what helped nurture you and inspire you to do the tremendous growth you have? Mm. Well, thanks, thanks for quite, yeah, I, you know, let me think, um, well, one is I think I think I got a running start as I referenced my mom, and I had grown up with a disabled mother. So a lot of people I met in rehab, really it almost had to it almost felt like a required one to three year period of hating themselves, for because they couldn't play football anymore or whatever whatever it was, and they had to just hate their body and just and I got to sidestep all that. You know, I had my mom had taught me in her example and just and explicitly that. You know, this is just part of life, and loss is normal. And one of my favorite things that happens when I've talked to, sometimes I'll give talks with school kids. And my favorite thing is when, when someone, when a kid asks me, well, don't you miss having two hands? And I'll say, well, yeah, I mean, I do. I really do. Two hands is so lovely. Um, but, uh, you, know, you know, it's okay. And, you know, and don't you miss having three hands? And they'll say... <laughs> You know, very, I, I always wonder, like, how, if they ever get it, because every once in a while you watch a kid get it, because you know, who are you comparing yourself to? Am I, like, so unlucky to have, uh, have lost a hand, or am I super lucky to have my dominant hand? I, you know, this is all very mushy stuff, and you get to say. So I had learned from so much from my mother, so I had a kind of a running start. I knew that I wasn't just my body. I knew this thing was going to die anyway. I knew that it was something to work around. I knew that limitations were exactly what get us creatively primed. You know, talk to an architect. They don't deal with a blank sheet of paper. They got gravity. They got all sorts of material limitations. Limitations are what prime us as humans to find a way through. We were we lost without limitations in some way. They are exactly what make us creative. So I knew all those things already going in that, on some level. That was very helpful. Then, as you referenced, turning my, sort of, I, I, I went back to college and turned my major to art. Because of this question, I wanted to learn this perspective. I want, what made a human being a human being? And I had this, this magnificent campus and this ridiculous course catalog, and I saw it as therapeutic. You know, that was, that, I'm very proud of myself for seeing that, for the, the therapeutic potential of my mind and being in a place where I could cultivate my mind. And studying art taught me how to see. 
And that was a really huge gift. We human beings, it's stunning. We can change out our lenses. We can change how we see things. That is a probably at least my favorite human capacity. And it's so dang therapeutic. This is not a recreational interest. This is a therapeutic one. So, so I took advantage of what I had there. And then I guess along the way, I just realized that this was, again, not something to overcome, but something to work with, something to use. I would not be doing the work I'm doing if it hadn't happened. Right? So I built a life with it. And after a while, I couldn't, I couldn't hate this accident anymore because it brought so much my way. That was the trick. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. So first, thank you so much for the discussion that um, we feel, I think, all honored to be here and listen to this. So I was curious if you have um, insights or advice for those of us who are interested in being of service in the field of palliative care who don't have a medical background. Great, 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 great. So, well, any clinical, so doctor, so palliative care, you guys know the team is doctor, nurse, social worker, chaplain at least. Do you mean not, not a doctor or not a clinician? So I guess not a clinician. I'm hoping that someone else will benefit from this question. Um, I'm a user experience designer and mm. I'm also interested in mindfulness and meditation. And as I've been learning about palliative care, it just seems like there are so many opportunities and challenges, but it's a bit overwhelming to know where to kind of start and like get oriented. Um, but I just feel very drawn yeah. to the mission. So, so that's, I guess, the context behind why I'm asking. Great. So I think, I think you're, I mean, we could talk for hours on this. So this is why, so the book that we referenced, my co-author, Shoshana Berger, she's the editorial director at IDEO. Oh. She's a designer. Because to me, design thinking is this whole other sort of social science is a way of, if we see illness and death as an experience, well, then we get to create for it and condition it. And that is, that's design. You know, so you can exercise this in all sorts of ways directly. You could get involved with design around patient experience, uh, durable medical equipment, adaptive devices, architecture, or indirectly just take on, on your mission that your work is to be a force in this world that helps people suffer less and love more. You would be, in my mind, a palliative designer if you did that. So you can apply it directly or indirectly. Also, just to mention, at CCARE, we've developed a compassion cultivation training program that actually is very useful for people who are caregivers or are suffering or dealing with other existential uh, crises. And a lot of people, uh, in fact, one of our teachers, Robert Cusack, deals with a lot of people who are grieving or at end of life types of situations. To be respectful of BJ, uh, he has to pick up his dog oh, up in San Francisco. In Mel and, Mill Valley. In Mill Valley, I'm sorry. And so we're going to have to let him go. Uh, thank you all so much. And I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of your questions. Thank you, guys. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts. Or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Dot com.